Shalom, and welcome to Inside Israel News, your source for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news, politics, and current events in the Middle East. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Welcome back to Inside Israel News. It's been a fascinating week with all kinds of fun that I'll be going into shortly. First things first, though, special thanks to listener Daniel. Daniel is Israeli, and he likes to listen in English, and he says that the uh, analysis you receive here is better than the Israeli news. He has access to all of the Israeli news, the left, the right, uh, all of their various news outlets, and he prefers to come here because he likes the way the information is presented here, and uh, he thinks the analysis is better. So thank you, Daniel. All right. Well, we've got... This week, uh, Iran deal negotiations coming up, uh, a, an attempted coup in, in, in Jordan, maybe? We'll be talking about that here in just a second. Uh, and, of course, uh, Israeli politics in full gear. Uh, coalition talks are already afoot, and uh, the, first, uh, the, the candidate who will have the first go at forming a coalition will be decided literally tomorrow. And while I could record an episode tomorrow with that headline in mind, it might be more interesting to record it tonight, discuss the different possibilities, and of course, uh, tomorrow you'll have the headline and you'll know precisely who that is, and uh, you'll already have heard me discuss it here, or if you've already heard the headline you're listening to the discussion, then you'll know uh, the ambiguity will be gone, uh, but you'll still hear my analysis in any event. So with that, let's talk about Iran. Biden administration representative Rob Malley, who will be meeting with Iranian officials soon, uh, to talk about the Iran deal, has made a number of statements to the press lately that have Israel and several other countries deeply concerned about uh, the administration's approach. Speaking on questions of sanctions ahead of the negotiations, I might add, and let me just say, uh, if you've read The Art of the Deal uh, by Donald Trump or any great negotiating book out there, uh, there's, some, there's some great books out there. But one of the things you don't do before you go into a negotiation uh, is fold. You know, if you play poker, you, you, you know, when, when you're about to place the first bet, right, you don't just fold. <laughs> you got your cards, and now you're just going to fold before you even play. Um, wow. So uh, from the way Rob Malley is talking, uh, the, the way that this administration looks at the relationship with Iran is that Iran was, uh, you know, unicorns and magic and what have you. Iran was being absolutely wonderful in their compliance with the nuclear deal. And Donald Trump came in and just messed it all up. And because Donald Trump came in and messed it all up, now we're just going to have to get rid of all those sanctions Donald Trump put on there and just get everybody right back to the deal. We're not going to make it longer, harder, tougher, or anything of that nature. We're just going to go right back to the, the deal that we had before. Well, as I've discussed, we already have had headlines since then from the IAEA, International Atomic Agen Energy Agency, that they know the Iranians are not allowing them to inspect certain sites where they have detected radiation. So we already know that Iran never kept to the deal in the first place. They've also been developing ballistic missiles. Why would they be developing ballistic missiles? Let me see. If you're Iran and you're sort of kind of thinking about enriching uranium and, and creating a, a fissile material, and you're also developing ballistic missiles, what could you possibly want to use those for? Well, maybe delivering those nuclear warheads to, say, Britain or France. Well, that's what they're working on. 
So uh, there, there never was an Iran deal to begin with. What there was was uh, an Iran sellout where uh, the, the Obama administration gave away sanctions and gave money and gave um, basically regional leadership to Iran in exchange for Iran fighting Islamic State and uh, the promise that the Iranians were going to play nice, I guess. <clears throat> um, kind of reminds me that, that Neville Chamberlain landing uh, in the field in southern England and saying, I have a, a document that bears the signature of Adolf Hitler that there will be peace in our time. Well, uh, we've seen what peace in our time looks like with Iran, and I'm not impressed. The administration is uh, taking the position that, that is extremely weak. They're, they're trying to make it sound like we are the problem, like the, the Iran deal fell apart because America didn't hold up its end of the bargain. Uh, Iran never held up its end of the bargain. Iran went into this deal, if you want to call it that, uh, without any intention of following through on it. So this is, uh, this is the problem uh, in this situation. Obviously, the Iranians are pretending to cave or pretending to blink, if you consider this a staring contest, in order to uh, give the best press to uh, America, to the Biden administration, in the hopes that they'll get the best deal. And with the Biden administration already talking about peeling off uh, sanctions and such, it's like, you know, I've, I, we're playing a game of poker and I've already folded. Like before we've even bet, before we've done anything, I got my cards and that's it. I'm out. I fold. I'm done. You know, you win. Well, that's a heck of a way to start a negotiation. But uh, this is this is the Biden doctrine. The, the Biden doctrine that you surrender before the fight. <laughs> I guess that's uh, what we have to look forward to for the next few years. So the next interesting story from the week, a uh, fascinating little little spat, is uh, the possibility that there was a coup in Jordan. We're not quite sure. Everything's kind of up in the air. Nobody's really wanting to talk about it. But sounds a lot like something happened there. Uh, the Hishamite kingdom... Uh, is ruled by uh, King Abdullah II, took over for him from his father uh, a few years back. And he and the Jordanian kingdom have worked very hard to come back into the international community after his father sided with Saddam Hussein during the first Gulf War. And that really isolated Jordan and put Jordan in a, in a very bad position in terms of uh, economic uh, circumstances. Obviously, Iran, uh, uh, Jordan doesn't have any oil. <laughs> Every other country in the Middle East has oil, but not Jordan. Uh, Israel has oil and gas offshore for the most part, right? Uh, so even Israel, even Israel has oil, but not Jordan. Wow. Uh, when you're we're talking about being the most poorly situated country in the Middle East. In any case, uh, Jordan has suffered quite a bit from that. And they've worked very hard to make peace with Israel uh, in 96 and play the moderate pro-Western country since then in the hopes of uh, rekindling economic ties, improving trade relations, and uh, kind of, let's say, erasing uh, the prior king's uh, error. There's, there's been a, a very poorly kept secret in the royal family that Prince Hamza, who is the half-brother of King Abdullah, does not like this arrangement. Uh, that he is, let's just say, uh, he feels the system is kind of corrupt or, or not perfect, or he doesn't like this this kind of sell-out-to-the-West approach. However, it's not entirely clear whether he's pro-Islamist, pro-Iran. 
that's all been kind of kept quiet. But but it's not been a very well-kept secret that uh, Prince Hamza doesn't get on with King Abdullah. Well, he apparently uh, sent messages to the military blasting the king, uh, putting the king on blast, I guess you could say. He has uh, called the kingdom corrupt. He has called for constitutional reform. And uh, he started making a lot of noise that sounded a lot like he was trying to push his brother out of power. All of a sudden, the Iranian, uh, excuse me, the Jordanian, well, I guess the Jordanians are acting like the Iranians now. So the Jordanian security forces went and started rounding up high-ranking officials uh, thought to be sympathetic to Prince Hamza. And there's been some talk of Hamza possibly fleeing to another country. Uh, He said that he's made calls to international allies, although he has not clearly defined who those people might be or what his intentions are or if he were to lead this coup, who he is leading this coup on behalf of. Um, now he's under house arrest and all of a sudden, uh, you know, he's, he's sworn his allegiance to King Abdullah. He's his best friend. Uh, he supports the Constitution and, and the policies in the country and all as well. So, wow, uh, the Heshemite kingdom has, since the Gulf War, really tried to paint itself as the stable Western ally, stable friend of the West. They are uh, the the moderate uh, pro-Western Muslim country in the Middle East. And and they they love everyone and have no ill will toward uh, any any party in the Middle East. Uh, Again, they've made peace with Israel and, and they've done everything they can to put themselves in that position. This is the first sign of instability in that kingdom since 1965, since the the Palestinians were prepared to revolt and overthrow the Heshemite kingdom. Uh, tipped off by the Israelis that there was such a movement on, the Jordanians, of course, responded. Now, the Israelis had no way to know how they were going to respond. Uh, the massacre of ten to 30,000 Palestinian uh, Arabs resulted. There are mass graves to this day that no one's ever looked at in Jordan. Uh, and, uh, of course, you know, when Arabs kill other Arabs, that doesn't make the news. Nobody, nobody really cares about that. But Jordan has killed far more... Uh, Arabs, far more Palestinians than have died uh, in any of the conflicts between Israel and the, the Palestinian people, if, if such a, a people ever existed. In any case, uh, it's more convenient just to refer to them as Palestinians, even though uh, no such people really exists. Uh, but that's a story for another time. In any case, uh, since 1965, Jordan has been relatively stable. Stable enough, for example, that they were able to make peace with Israel in 1996. But now there's some signs of internal chafing, of internal trouble. Uh, the, they're going to try to put a lid on this. Curiously, I just want to note for the region, when there are problems in Qatar or Bahrain or other countries in the Middle East, typically the the local regional media fan the flames of it. Uh, It'll either be Al Jazeera uh, taking some some kind of an angle on what's going on in a pro-Islamist bent, uh, or it'll be Al Arabiya or somebody. Somebody will come up and and just, you know, kick the story and uh, up a notch and just try to escalate. In this case, the regional press has been relatively quiet. No one has really come to Prince Hamza's defense and uh, King Abdullah has got him under house arrest and now he's kind of like, you know, put a sock in it and uh, let's chill everything out. So is this going to be a story for the long term? I don't know, but it sure looks like a putsch was in, eff- in, in effect or there was an attempt uh, at it 
and it uh, it seems to have gone sideways for Prince Hamza. Quickly, before I go into Israeli politics at all, I will discuss a little corner of Israeli politics that's going on, and that is that uh, one of the trials on Bibi's purported corruption charges is taking place now, the first hearing held today. Uh, after a short time, uh, Bibi was allowed by the judge to leave, and uh, there was some testimony taken from one of the witnesses uh, this trial is what's called Trial 4000, if you've been following those in detail. This is the Bezik uh, case, where purportedly <clears throat> Bibi made a deal with the owners of Bezik to uh, promote him and his family, positive stories about them and that kind of thing. And so there was a an employee talking about how he was told to take down negative stories about Bibi from uh, their website <clears throat> and to uh, promote positive stories about Bibi and uh Bibi's family and what great people they were. Uh, there has been some positive coverage of Bibi and some negative. Generally speaking, the press in Israel is not very loving of Bibi. Obviously, the the far-right media finds fault with him to the right. He's not right-wing enough. He's not doing enough to protect the country. And, oh, my God, he's a sellout. He's a he's a traitor. He's a conspirator with the Arabs. You know, and then on the left, he's, he's everything evil in the world. Uh, apparently, uh, this... During the testimony, uh, this uh, employee for uh, Bezik said that uh, they had nicknamed Bibi Kim Jong-un. Uh, tells you what some of the, the people in the media think of uh, Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, it's kind of sickening. But in any case, supposedly, Bibi traded regulatory favors, uh, giving, giving favorable regulatory <clears throat> uh, uh, status uh, making regulatory changes that benefited Bezik, uh, and in, as a result, he was given more positive coverage by Bezik. If this is a crime here, uh, if there, you know, in, in terms of the law, technically speaking, if you are a public official, uh, and this is kind of a general law, I'm not going to go into specific different places, but if there is a quid pro quo, if I am the president and you are the head of a major media company and we sit down and I say, I will do this, this, and this for you if you also do this, this, and this for me, uh, that is that is illegal, <clears throat> right? You cannot do favors, use public, uh, the public... Uh, sector, the the bureaucracy, the regulatory authorities, for the benefit of your friends, you know, you personally or for your friends, granted. However, in the political world, these kinds of deals are never spoken that way. Nobody ever really comes right out and says it. Having worked uh, around Sacramento in California in the state legislature and that kind of thing, nobody walks into a senator's office and says, I'll give you $10,000 if you do this thing for me. It just doesn't work that way. There's a, there's a political language for this. Generally, they come in and they ask, hey, we've got this problem. Will you help us with it? And based on how the votes go or whether certain bills were killed in committee or what have you, uh, when it comes time to give political donations, those people are generally just very favorable. Hey, Senator so-and-so uh, opposed this bill, killed it in committee for us. And curiously, when that senator runs for re-election, $10,000 appears in uh, a fund. Uh, now that we have campaign finance controls, of course, you know, some fund, some, uh, you know, independent group that's attacking his opponent or promoting uh, that senator, him or her, I guess I could say. In any case... These things usually aren't spelled out. So uh, the witnesses, they've had a couple witnesses that purported to have overheard or been familiar with this quid pro quo. A couple of them have recanted. It's not entirely clear that they have solid evidence that that was the case. It's entirely possible that uh, Bibi just wanted to promote this large business. Bezik has had some financial troubles in Israel and maybe he was trying to help them. 
who knows? In any case, uh, uh, if, if the people who run Bezik, of course, wanted to be more positive about Bibi because he'd been helpful to them, uh, that's not a quid pro quo. They have to be able to prove there was a direct intent for him to have some kind of personal benefit or political benefit in exchange for uh, doing something in the public sector that benefited them. We'll see. Uh, but in any case, that trial has begun, and it is curious that since Bibi is sitting prime minister and is under, you know, he's, he's had a trial going on for corruption, uh, he's finally facing those charges and dealing with those things. The argument from the other side has been that he needs to leave office in order to do that, although people work full time and face charges all the time. Uh, it's, it's not uncommon for a person to make their court appearances and then go back to work. Uh, that's that's life. So it's not clear why that requires him to step down. Uh, these charges may completely fail to uh, convict. They may, if they fail to convict him, then that would be political interference, really, using the, the argument that there are charges pending if those charges are malicious or unfounded or if those charges do not stick if, if he's not convicted. So uh, again, we'll see what happens. That process has begun. Uh, it began today auspiciously just before the uh, the president announces who will have the first go at forming a coalition. And uh, we'll see how uh, the political fallout from that impacts the coalition building process. So with that, uh, when I'm back from the break, we'll discuss the political situation a little more in depth and where we stand with the coalition talks. As I've described before, the beginning of the coalition building process, the first step is that the party's leaders, the leaders of the various parties, meet with the president and they recommend a candidate for prime minister. Now, uh, these meetings of the president are a formality and, and that kind of thing. The president of Israel, of course, doesn't have the kind of power, political power of the U.S., kind of a figurehead uh, office, uh, head of state, ceremonial office, let's just say, kind of like the Queen of England. Although the Queen of England on paper has a lot of power, the president of Israel on paper has very little. And the president is supposed to remain above politics, as I'll discuss in a little bit uh, some of what that means. Nevertheless, uh, these parties met with the president and they have made their recommendations. And there are some a couple of surprises, but let's just say the ones that I discussed were not among them. Uh, so let's go ahead and get this out of the way. How did joint list vote? Joint list voted not to recommend any candidate. Are you surprised? I'm not surprised. Why? Because I listened to Inside Israel News, and where did I hear on in, what did I hear on Inside Israel News? But that Joint List wasn't going to recommend a candidate in all likelihood, and there would be a real surprise if they did. Ergo, my prior comment that once again I just have to repeat it: it was disingenuous for the media to include Joint List in the anti-BB. Among the anti-BB parties when discussing election results. Okay, now that I've covered that for the umpteenth time, uh, you have to forgive me. These kinds of uh, media stories just, they really bug me. They really do. Uh, the media situation, as I just described, like the charges against BB, could you imagine if that kind of thing were prosecuted here in the United States? These sleight of hand uh, things, I mean, you know. Half of our, uh, most of our, our media professionals and half of our elected leaders would all be going to prison because there's so much collusion between the media and, uh, you know, to the benefit of, of uh, uh, these political individuals here. So anyway, yeah, that's all just a mess. And so for, you'll have to forgive my frustration, but I want to vent it because I, I know many of you share it. it. 
is really important to me here, and I, I obviously have my own biases and I try to claim them, that I tell you what I believe to be true. Not what, what I hope is true, but what I believe is true. And uh, it just, it boggles my mind that here I go to such an effort to try to to do that as best I can. And the media in Israel and, and international media will just outright lie. Just blatantly, they know exactly what I know. They're not stupid, right? They know what I know, and yet they're going to go out there and lie to you anyway. Well, I'm not going to lie to you. It doesn't mean that I'm always right, and it doesn't mean that uh, I'm always completely and entirely unbiased, but at least I try. So on with the <laughs> political commentary, uh, as true as I understand it in any event. Um, okay, so uh, the other surprise was that uh, New Hope, uh, the the New Hope party led by Gidon Saar, who has been a candidate against Bibi Netanyahu, did not recommend a candidate either. So the parties that did not recommend a candidate were New Hope, uh, the, the right-wing party made up of people who split from Likud because they oppose Bibi, led by Gidon Saar, uh, the Joint List Party, which is uh, three and a half Arab parties that sit together in a... Uh, they all run together, kind of dole out their seats to one another ahead of time and then run as a single party, or rather a single list of, of parties on the ballot. Uh, and Ra'am, which is led by uh, Mansour Abbas, is the other Arab party. So uh, that Ra'am and Joint List didn't vote for anyone is not a surprise. Uh, Mansour Abbas is likely to sit this process out for a while, wait and see what develops. And if an opportunity presents itself to him, to join a coalition last minute and be a kingmaker and thus be able to get a maximum of concessions to benefit himself personally, obviously. Uh, nobody is altruistic in this process, but also the Arab community in Israel, then that will be uh, that will be the case. In recent speech he made about that, his failure to reference the Palestinians or call Israeli Arabs or Arab Israelis Palestinians uh, got a few people upset, apparently. But the fact is, uh, his speech said that he was open-minded to joining a coalition if it would benefit Arab Israelis, and that is where he's going to stand. So New Hope did not vote for a candidate because they're in the middle of negotiations with Yeshatid, led by Yair Lapid, who is one of the candidates for prime minister, and uh, they have not yet made a deal with him. And so uh, unable to reach a deal with him, they have decided not to recommend anyone. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That, that's kind of funny. That's like not showing your hand or folding when you're playing poker. Uh, you know, you kind of hold your cards close to your vest until you know how everything's kind of shaken out. Uh, who's going to fold and who's going to hold and, and how far the game is going to go. That's a funny thing. You know, you'd almost think that that's a smart negotiating tactic. Anyway, deep breath. So uh, now we have... Uh, the two groups that have recommended uh, one or the other. So those recommending Bibi Netanyahu were, in no particular order, Likud, Shas, United Torah Judaism, and Religious Zionism, the Religious Zionist Party, all told 52 seats. Same as the election results, so I won't go into the numbers there. Uh, so the, the 52 seats of the parties that are most closely associated with Bibi, his natural coalition, have recommended him. Uh, Yair Lapid was recommended by 45 
uh, MKs, members of Knesset, uh, because, of course, the, the six members from uh, New Hope, uh, Gidon Sa'ar's party, did not recommend him. And if they had, they would still have had 51 seats and they'd still have been beneath uh, Bibi. So it really didn't make a big difference in the grand scheme of things. Thus, obviously, Gidon Sa'ar is going to continue his tough negotiations, playing hardball and, and try to get himself a good uh, deal arranged with uh, Yair Lapid uh, in that regard. And Naftali Bennett's Yamina party, all seven of them voted for, you guessed it, Naftali Bennett to be prime minister. Kind of an interesting position. If you go back to one of the supplements I made discussing the possibility of Naftali Bennett as prime minister, um, one of the things we didn't know at that point, one of the things that hadn't quite come out uh, there uh, was that uh, polls have consistently shown, and there were some polls that, that came in after that, have consistently shown that uh, Naftali Bennett is the second most popular political figure in Israel. So, again, here he is with seven seats. And, of course, if he'd had, like Yair Lapid, 16 seats or 15 seats or something in that, you know, that neighborhood, he might have had a really good shot at being prime minister. However, uh, democracy is not all about these numbers. The fact is, uh, of all the people who are candidates for prime minister, he is the most popular after Bibi. And that means that if they're going to form a coalition, there is talk now, that's the next topic here, talk now of a rotation between Bennett and Lapid. Everyone is competing over Yair Lapid. And I'm sure Yair Lapid, uh, with, excuse me, everyone's competing over Naftali Bennett, Yair Lapid included, uh, BB as well. Everyone wants Bennett in their coalition, and that puts Bennett in the best position. So obviously, Naftali Bennett is feeling pretty good right now. He's riding high. Uh, he, he can make or break some things. He is not the kingmaker, however, because even if Yair Lapid can pull together all of the anti-BB parties that are uh, likely to join a coalition, ergo not including joint list, right, uh, you have 51 seats. Well, uh, with uh, Naftali Bennett uh, having seven members, uh, he can only take them up to 58. So they will still be two seats shy of the majority and uh, that excuse me three seats three seats shy of the 61 seat majority they'll be two seats shy of half uh, they'll be three seats shy of the the majority to form a coalition and so they're still going to need another party which you know puts then you know if they get that far uh, Mansour Abbas is sitting out there with four seats and maybe maybe he'll be there in any case who's going to go first so uh, President Rivlin uh, Ruby Rivlin his name is Reuven, and uh, as I've discussed before, uh, nobody in Israel is, is called by their name. Uh, there's always some clever nickname. Uh, you're Ruby or Bibi or, or something like this. Uh, Itsy something. You, know, you have some kind of clever nickname. And uh, this is uh, Ruby Rivlin's choice here, but there are limits. So, for example, uh, when party members representing Gidon Sa'ar met with the president, they asked the president to give uh, the current discussion group, let's just say the anti-BB coalition, Lapid, Bennett, the first go at forming a coalition, because uh, even though they weren't recommending anyone, they believed that they would soon be in that camp. And the president pointed out that that could be seen as political meddling. And uh, he really is sort of a slave in the political situation to uh, who has the most recommendations, the recommendation of the most seats in, in parliament. And at that moment, at the moment, that is Bibi Netanyahu. 
However, the president also noted that Bibi is facing charges and now uh, under trial, and he will be considering that in his decision as well. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. However, looking at the numbers, again, even if New Hope had recommended uh, uh, the the Yair Lapid candidacy or the Bennett Lapid candidacy, even if all of Bennett's votes had been in there, we would still be several seats shy of an outright majority even though that would be more seats than uh, Bibi Netanyahu. So it's not clear what's going to happen there. All right. The big discussion point, Lapid and Bennett are talking, and uh, Lapid apparently is talking about a rotation with Bennett. And uh, the talk now is that it's possible Bennett may go first. Even though Israel is a multi-party proportional parliamentary system, and thus individual candidates for prime minister do not run against each other head to head, although that has happened before. Uh, I have to discuss that in a supplement sometime. In any case, uh, the fact is that the polls matter. And and when you poll the situation, you find that if you ask everyone who should be prime minister, obviously Bibi comes in first, but the next person is Bennett. And if you take Bibi out of the equation and say, well, who who should be prime minister if Bibi is not an option, Bennett is the one who gets the highest marks. And so when you when you put all that calculation together and maybe you're, you're, you're Lapid, you say, hey, um, if Naftali Bennett goes first in rotation for two years and then I go next, uh, or maybe one year, depending on how long they plan to run this coalition, then um, that is the best situation for everyone because uh, that would be the next popular prime minister. So, uh, be, you know, Bennett has a good shot at being prime minister, something I discussed in a supplement even back during the election, the the possibility that this could be a reality, that this could happen. And uh, so, you know, you, I won't say you heard it here first, but it was discussed here quite a while back. Anyway, we have these talks underway at the moment, and it looks like there's a good chance that uh, Lapid and Bennett will come to some kind of agreement. Gidon Sa'ar wants to get in there as well. He's also fairly popular. Yair Lapid is the least popular of the four men who are being considered for prime minister. Uh, yet, <clears throat> he's obviously the most popular on the left, being you know the center-left populist candidate. So, uh, obviously, he and having the largest uh, party in this prospective coalition, the second largest party in the Knesset, he would uh, be in a prominent position to hold the office of prime minister. But uh, he is far from the most personally popular. So it'd be interesting to see how that might play out. So uh, if they're able to put that grouping together, again, they get 58 seats, they're very close to a majority, then it would just be a question of coaxing someone else into the coalition. Following their meetings with President Rivlin, a number of party leaders gave comments to the press, and one of them, journalist for Channel 2 and uh, leader of the Meretz party, Nitzan Horowitz, gave an interesting commentary about how uh, the coalition would be put together of center-right, center-left, and hard-right parties, but mentioned that religious Zionists would not be among them. Well, if religious Zionists, uh, and he also said Likud, of course. So if Likud and, and religious Zionists are not to be part of their, their coalition, and the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox parties, both the Sephardic and Ashkenazic parties, are likely to remain loyal to Bibi, that means that the, the subtle hint there, I want to say, the other side of the coin from his comment is that they're talking to the Arabs. So they're, they're thinking maybe if they get everybody together into their coalition, and there they've got uh, Bennett and Lapid and Saar and all of them, then uh, they might bring in Ra'am 
and form a coalition with them, which would uh, put them at 62, uh, one more than the necessary majority, and give them uh, the government. Of course, in order to get there, they have to have the shot at forming the government, and it's not entirely clear whether President Ruby Rivlin will give that to them. He will make that de- determination tomorrow, and in all likelihood, he is probably going to tap BB to go first. If, if anything, tapping BB to go first does a couple of things. Uh, if BB is able to put a coalition together, obviously that ends this political crisis for as long as that coalition lasts. But uh, if he is unable to form a coalition, it gets him out of the way. There, there's no there's no returning to BB. So if let's say Lapid and Bennett were to go first in form trying to form a coalition and say that they failed, then there would be a chance to give BB a go at forming a coalition, and he could do that afterward. If Bibi goes first and is unable to form a coalition and Lapid Bennett are given an opportunity to form it after him, then they know the failure to form a coalition means a new election. Uh, and of course, the likelihood of any kind of unity coalition here, in, in quotation marks, uh, of uh, some kind of left-right, uh, some breakdown of the anti-BB, pro-BB blocks to form a coalition is very, very unlikely. Everyone in the anti-BB block from Gideon Sa'ar to uh, Yair Lapid and Labour and everyone, they've all taken a, a stand against Bibi Netanyahu personally, and many of them have uh, political grievances with Likud as well. So the chances of that happening are fairly low. So if, uh, if Bibi's given the first go, if he is able to find a way, maybe uh, to form a coalition, that'd be a good thing. Obviously, uh, a good thing in the sense that for, it'd be good for him uh, in forming a coalition. Uh, not venturing an opinion there. I just mean from his perspective, it would be good that he would be able to form a coalition. Uh, and he'll be happy that, that he was able to do that. Uh, obviously, while that's happening, it also puts Bennett in a very strong negotiating position with Lapid because... Uh, that those negotiations can be ongoing while Bibi has the first go at forming a coalition. And as I discussed in the uh, supplement, he can, of course, uh, kind of have it both ways. He can, he can play both sides against the middle, saying, hey, I'm also talking to Bibi. He's offering me X, Y, and Z. What are you offering me that works? And obviously, uh, Lapid's main thing, obvi- obviously, they're talking about a rotation. So, you know the the big thing that that Naftali Bennett would get here the big the big prize that would coax him away from Bibi is the big office he's going to be prime minister for one or two years whatever the agreement is and that's that's big that that puts him in a, a new class let's just say in terms of leadership and uh, political opportunity however uh for Bennett uh if he even if he goes in that direction, the the prospect that Lapid will be able to form a coalition is still uh, a little bit shaky, right? Because they can they get up to fifty eight, but they can't quite they can't quite form a majority. So that'll be interesting. There uh, is there something BB can do to get Bennett to his side? I don't know. Uh, BB has offered Bennett a rotation before. Uh, he has already ruled out rotation uh, during the election. He said he would not do a rotation if he's elected prime minister. He's under trial now. I mean, he's actually going to court now. We'll see. Uh, this is this is uh, definitely crunch time, but uh, it's hard to imagine that BB has a better prize to offer Bennett. However, I think Bennett and his constituents would certainly be best 
in the best political situation if he extracted the, the best concessions he could get out of Bibi and then put Bibi's 52 seats up to 59. And then they're just two seats from majority. Would Ra'am fill out that majority? Uh, we don't know, because at that point then, uh, you know, at this, at this juncture, Ra'am seems to be the kingmaker between both of them. Uh, and if they do not join a coalition or if uh, those forming a coalition rule out uh, bringing Arab parties into the coalition, it will mean a new election. How is this going to go? Tune in next week and we'll find out. I'll try to record a supplement once we know who's been uh, pegged to uh, get, have the first go at, at forming a coalition. And uh, once that name is known, and discuss that just a little bit uh, in brief. And then next week we'll see how the different negotiations and the meandering of uh, Israeli politics has gone. So with that, I will say goodbye. Lahitrot. <laughs> Amashkatot ha-yeshanot Yag'inu tapukhe zahar